Thank you so much again for your endurance of the marathon we're running here. Um, We are now going to be looking at a passage in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. So if you turn with me in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. And actually, uh, while you turn there, just, just a recommendation. These passages, though they are not the only passages in the Bible that say you know, what they say. There's others that say similar things, and you could certainly memorize others. But these five verses that we've referenced, at least these five passages of Scripture, would form a great ongoing personal study that I would highly recommend because really the overall message of this whole seminar is make God's definition yours. Uh, That's really the, the overall purpose is to say study God's word and as you study it follow it Uh, follow God's plan for romance Uh, God's plan though it doesn't have all of the details and all the specifics it has some very valuable sometimes painful but ultimately glorious uh, directives for our romance and so I think if you can study even just these five passages these five verses I think they would frame a very helpful theology of romance for you uh, and I would recommend it. I would recommend memorizing maybe a, a section of each of the passages and see if that will serve you uh, as you craft a theology of romance. Uh, we had the youth in Phoenix gave a little card for them, gave out prizes for them to memorize some of these verses and so forth. Um, I don't know how many of them actually did it by now, but uh, it certainly would be a worthwhile endeavor. It would, it would serve you to meditate on these and come up with your own convictions based on these passages. Uh, for your practice and how these things should be put into place. But we certainly recommend it. And Hebrews 13.4 is no exception. So let's read that passage together. And I want to ask the Lord again to help us uh, this morning. Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Well, I I want to spend a session talking about sexuality and physical intimacy. I hope it's not awkward for anyone. It probably will be. If it is, just get over it and keep looking at me. You don't have to look to the sides. That's fine. Uh, I won't feel awkward if you don't. So uh, it's just such an important part of this whole topic, so prevalent in our culture and so celebrated in the Bible that we just simply can't ignore it, uh, even though obviously it's kind of awkward to talk about sexuality in a mixed kind of group like this. But I, I trust that this will add a lot to our discussion. Uh, and really, that initial phrase, let marriage be held in honor among all, that might kind of function as a summarizing theme for the Bible's teaching on romance. A summarizing theme might be, let marriage be held in honor among all. Uh, Because if you look at the Bible and consider what it says and what it doesn't say, uh, the one thing that seems to draw everything together is that idea of let marriage be held in honor among all. And obviously, as we look at this particular passage with references to the marriage bed and God's judgment of the sexually immoral and adulterous, uh, this is particularly referencing the physical intimacy that takes place within marriage. Uh, 
And that that physical intimacy is to be held in honor among all. Now, what I want to ask is, how do you do that when you're 15? How do you do that when you're 17? How do you do that when you're 24? When you're 37 and not married? When you're a single person, how do you obey that scripture, that command? Let marriage be held in honor among all. What does that look like, right? How, how do you fulfill that plan in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4? And I just want to make two points, two points that I, I believe you should believe because God does. Two things I think you should believe, and this flows really directly from the last message. These two kind of go together. The first is that God's plan is beautiful. So slightly different point than what I was making last time. God's plan is beautiful beautiful. Your view of sex should begin with this belief. God's plan is beautiful because God thinks it is. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So the sexual aspect of marriage between a husband and his wife is a beautiful plan. It's a plan that we saw in Genesis as, as it references there, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his my, wife, the two shall become one flesh. Right? Elsewhere in Genesis it says, a man knows his wife. It's celebrated throughout the Bible, this aspect of physical intimacy within marriage. And it's really a part of what God was saying when he said, it's not good for a man to be alone. And again, we can all sort of recognize that. We recognize that. Right from adolescence on through adulthood, there's there's something that God has implanted in us of a physical desire to be with a guy. If you're a girl, girl. If you're a guy, there's there's this physical desire for sexuality. God put that there. That's not weird. That's not wrong. That's not embarrassing. At least it shouldn't be embarrassing. That's not something that I really hope I don't have to talk to anybody about. That, that desire has been implanted in you by God. God's plan is beautiful. And I want to give you some reasons that I think it's beautiful. Some reasons why as we look at the, the plan of God in Scripture and, and how do we obey this passage of let marriage be held in honor among all. How do we honor the sexual reality of marriage? I think it goes beyond, if we look at the, uh, the, the pattern of Scripture, simply avoiding impurity. I think it begins with meditating on why this plan is beautiful, why it's honorable, why it's worthy of our esteem. It's not just don't have premarital sexual relationships with someone else. It's, it's a little more of a worshipful opportunity than just a thou shalt not. There's some reasons why this plan is beautiful. Let me give you the first one. First is God's plan for sexuality in marriage is beautiful because marriage is an exclusive relationship. Marriage is an exclusive relationship. Genesis 2, again to reference, it's a very important passage. Genesis 2.18, very, very important. Genesis 2 says, The two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. In other words, it's not intruded by any 
anyone on the outside. No one intrudes on this one flesh relationship. These two fleshes have become one flesh. It's as though one body has been made out of two. And the part of the point of that is no one else comes between them. No one else does. It is an exclusive relationship. Nobody else is allowed to be closer to me than my wife is. No one is allowed to be closer to her than I am. It is an exclusive relationship. Everybody else has a boundary line that they say, you shall not cross it. It's an exclusive relationship. There is something amazing about having one other person on earth that knows you and that you know that you have agreed with to disallow anyone else from attaining that same level of closeness. It's what it means to be married. When you marry someone, you commit to them, nobody else will ever be as close to me as you will be. Actually, no one else will even come close to being as close to me as you will be. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2, let the husband have his own wife and the wife have her own husband. In other words, nobody else gets inside this relationship and this relationship is exclusive to this person and this person being together. It's an exclusive relationship. It's not cheapened by repetition and multiple intruders. That's what makes it beautiful. How unlike the world in which few relationships are exclusive. It's actually considered an archaic idea for it to be exclusive. And we would be foolish not to believe that that idea hasn't started to affect our thinking as well. Now, at least we typically have the idea that once you're married, you've got to be exclusive. But often in the world, the pre-marriage state is seen as an opportunity if you're a non-Christian sexually. If you're a Christian, maybe emotionally and physically and everything except for absolute sex, you know, every other way physically, to be less than exclusive is considered desirable. Actually, it's considered wise in the world to not be exclusive. So you can consider your options. You can evaluate the benefits of one person over another person. An exclusive physical relationship is relegated to the kind of commitment that's a lot closer to marriage and all the scary aspects that that would entail. An exclusive relationship is considered somewhat archaic or certainly to be postponed for a later date. Exclusive physical relationship is very unusual in the world. And yet, God's plan is that there would be no physical intimacy apart from this exclusive relationship of a husband and a wife. It's an exclusive relationship. No one else gets to intrude. And you can see the kind of protection and benefit that offers when I know that no one else is as close to me as my wife. It frees me in certain ways that I could not be if this was a larger crowd. It's an exclusive relationship. Second reason it's beautiful, it is an irrevocable relationship. It is irrevocable. It's an irrevocable relationship. 
And I use that word intentionally. Now let me just throw in a caveat. I understand there are biblical reasons for divorce. But the overwhelming emphasis of the Bible is that a marriage is irrevocable. And so I, I don't think it's inappropriate to say that. So I know those exceptions are there. Please put, okay, they're there, all right? But the emphasis is marriage is irrevocable. It's an irre, you can't go back on it. It's more even than commitment because commitment can have this idea of intention not yet decided upon. So even in the world, we have these, well, it's a, I'm committed. It's a committed relationship. Or you have even Christians. Well, we're going to get married. We're going to get married. And yet God's plan is irrevocable. The man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. His unique female in all the world irrevocably has been found and only with that person is he one flesh. Permanently. It's different than commitment. It's a little bit different in the sense that you can imagine a person uh, that is in a boat leaving a shore. And you have another person that has one foot in the boat. And they are communicating to the other person in the boat, look, I am committed. I am coming with you. I will completely promise you that I am headed where you are headed and we are in this boat together. That's very meaningful. But it's not the same thing as getting in the boat and pushing off from the shore. This is commitment. This is irrevocable. It's over. It's done. It's an irrevocable relationship. And actually, that's part of what makes this plan beautiful. It's not we intend to get married, so this act is okay right now. It happens after we have been bound together. It's like stepping into that boat and leaving the shore. It's not just that I want to come. It's that that I'm on the boat with you. I have married you. I have already made the decision irrevocably to be committed to you for the rest of my life. What a contrast to the world. I'm committed to you. Therefore, I want you to give me some of what you have. I'm coming. I'm coming. So give me some of who you are. I'm coming. I I promise. I'm sure. I'm definitely. I would never change my mind. I I can't imagine ever doing. I'm going to marry you. We're going to be in this together for always. So give me some of who you are and what I want. You see how that upholds the selfishness of the world that craves without giving. How unlike God's plan that gives first and then receives. It's an irrevocable Commitment, And you can see why this is such a beautiful plan. It's a beautiful plan because then both people in this marriage have complete confidence that this can never be reversed. This cannot be reversed. So I give myself to some person sexually, right? And it can never be reversed. I never have to be in fear that perhaps they'll change their mind and step back out of the boat. Perhaps they'll step out of the boat because of the experience they had with me. Perhaps they're unwilling to work through this relationship with me. Perhaps they'll think maybe another option might be more preferable. How painful to think that a person has now received what I have to give 
And rather than working with that and giving of themselves, they are now considering other options. How like thievery. How painful. How would you even know while giving of yourself that that person isn't evaluating rather than enjoying? And wouldn't that ultimately affect their enjoyment as well? You simply can't enjoy what you are simultaneously deciding on at the same level. If you're an evaluator, a certain level of enjoyment is impossible because you're still deciding whether you enjoy it as much as you could. The plan is beautiful because both parties can be confident the decision has been made. We're just running towards enjoyment. It's an irrevocable plan. Thirdly, it's complete. It is complete. And I don't know what the right word is to say that, so I came up with complete. What I mean by that is physical intimacy is universal. It's total. It's not partial because it doesn't need to be. And you can see how these build on each other. It's exclusive, so nobody else comes in here. It's also irrevocable, so we have no fears of a, you know, regretting of this decision. It's also complete. There's no partial intimacy that's necessary so when a marriage happens a husband gives himself to a wife totally completely body and soul without reservation no holds barred totally pursuing this person categorically without physical restriction whatsoever how much better than the world's definition that attempts to evaluate commitment in the moment and decide whether my level of reservation is appropriate to their level of commitment. Isn't it more beautiful to have a complete physical unity without fear of regret or reservation? God's plan is beautiful because it promotes that it wants God wants that kind of complete physical unity between a husband and his wife. That's his plan. He doesn't want you to have to kind of hold back or be partial or consider whether this is appropriate at this stage, maybe at a later stage. He doesn't want those thoughts to have to come in. He wants complete physical unity to be freely expressed between a husband and a wife. That's his goal. That's his plan. He agrees with your internal longing when you want that too. He agrees with you. I totally agree. Physical limitations are a serious bummer. I don't like that I can only do so many things. Severely limited. I agree with you. Get married. I've made a plan where complete physical enjoyment of one or the other is totally appropriate. More than appropriate, it's what I planned all along. It's complete. Now, I wouldn't recommend if you're single, uh, especially if you're younger and single, that you read the Song of Solomon, even though it's in the Bible. I think the the Jewish students, uh, I don't think they read it until they were 30, and I understand why. Uh, Because basically the Song of Solomon is just a celebration of the complete physical enjoyment one of another that a husband is intending to experience with his wife. Now, it's, it's not, you know, vulgar in any way. It's very beautifully written. 
And it's very unlike the world's depiction of those kinds of things. But it's important to put it into our theology of sexuality because what we have here is God saying sexuality between a man and a woman is my plan, has always been my plan, and not only is it my plan, I'm not embarrassed by it, it's not awkward for me, all the aspects of enjoyment physically, I put loud and clear in my word, I'm celebrating it and I want you to anticipate it, and then when you're married, I want you to experience it fully. It's a celebration of God's creation of sexuality. There's one reason, there is one reason alone why sex has the power that it does in our culture. The kind of money that it generates, the kind of enthusiasm that is drawn to movies that have it present, the kind of just productions that are made about it. There's one ultimate reason for that. And that the God put a power in sexual desire that even fallen creation hasn't been able to erase. Now, it's distorted it. It's used it in every kind of disgusting, vulgar, non-glorifying, and human-degrading way possible, but it can't eradicate it. And so it uses it for its own ends. But there's one reason why it's so powerful, because God put that desire in there. People didn't make that up. It was God's plan way before it was Hollywood's. This kind of complete unity that's so desirable between a man and a woman. God made it for marriage. It's complete. Now, this also issues in a warning for us. It's just why Song of Solomon, three different times, in the Song of Solomon, not that long of a book, three different times, the bride in the book, as she's speaking, challenges, exhorts, and encourages her other single friends to not stir up love until it's ready. The reason why is because God intended sexuality to be complete. She knows that. She's about to experience that. And she's experiencing the anticipation of that. And she wants her single friends to say, look, don't start on this unless you're ready for it to be complete. There's a power here. Folks, there is a power here, and ladies, I just want to warn you, she's saying, ladies, she said the same thing to the guys, you don't want to start on this way unless you're ready for it to be complete. Because you are going to be experiencing the kind of explosive, dynamic power that God has implanted in sexual desire. So three times, she says, O daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And again, in chapter 3, verse 5, I adjure you, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Psalm in chapter 8, I adjure you, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, until it can have that which it pleases to have. Until it can have that which it is longing for. Don't stir it up until that love which, which is within you can receive all that it's longing for. Don't get it started unless you can finish it. It's a little bit like if you remember, you know, going to a water park. You have water parks in Dallas? Yeah? Water parks. Yeah, everybody's most probably been to a water park. Water parks, they have these slides, right? Some of them they do round and some go down slides. Which slide? They're great. I mean, water parks are great. We don't really have a lot of water parks in Phoenix. I don't know. Maybe they can't get the water from not turning to steam or something. I'm not sure. But they, they don't have water parks. But they're a lot of fun. It's, it's hot and water parks are fun. Well, you know how when you're, you're on a water slide, it's almost impossible to stop yourself part of the way down. And nor would you want to, 
right? I mean, part of the joy is letting it pick up speed. That's part of the fun of it. You just go faster and faster. You accelerate, and there's no friction, and you're just heading right down, right? That, that's part of the goal of the water slide. Well, I think that something in that is what this lady in the Song of Solomon is trying to say to other singles. They're saying, look, this thing was made to just run down this slide and enjoy it fully. That's what it was built for. God designed it to work one way. And it's great. I mean, it's so much fun. So much fun. And he made it to be fun. And he made it to accelerate. And he made it to have this kind of irrevocable force and power to it and just faster and faster. That's what he made it to be. Don't try to stop yourself way down the water slide. If you think you can, biblically speaking, you are foolish. You're trying to resist what God has made. Very unwise to go head to head with God the way he's made the creation. But that's what you're attempting to do. If you're saying, look, I'm... I don't want to, I know I can't go all the way down, okay? I, I know, I mean, obviously, the pool down there, I mean, that, that's off limits. However, surely it's not inappropriate to go partway down. Come on, what's the big deal? And surely I can stop myself partway down on the water slide, crawl back up, and then let's do another halfway down. I'm just going to go halfway down. I'm only going to go a quarter of the way down. I'm going to go a quarter of the way down, and, and that's my, you know, halfway down, they're really wrong. Quarter of the way, that's appropriate. I'm just going to start. I'm just going to go part of the way, and I, I, I am able to resist the rest of this gravitational pull that's going on here. Foolish. Foolish, and not just foolish, kind of dumb. It's foolish because, I mean, do you really think you can do that? I mean, really, ultimately, you think you can play with that kind of you know, intentional, gravitational direction, the way God made it. You really, you really think you want to mess with that? Also dumb, because wouldn't you want to wait until you can enjoy the whole thing? Isn't that what God intended in the first place? Now you notice, I am not going to give you a list of things you can do and can't do. You're dating, you know, some person that you think you might marry, started some courtship or something. I, I'm not going to give you you know, list, right? But I am going to say, when you make what's going to be appropriate or inappropriate, I think you ought to have that in view. You really shouldn't be foolish as to assume you can go partway down the slide. You really should listen to this single lady in Song of Solomon. Don't wake up love until it's ready. The good news is, there's a day when you can go all the way down the slide. And God made the slide. And he made it to work the way it does. Wait and enjoy the way he made it. Okay. Another observation. It's complete, this beautiful plan. It's also intended to be enjoyable. I've already said that, but just to emphatically say that again, Song of Solomon just celebrates this bride and groom just overwhelmed with joy and it's sexual anticipation, right? It is physical joy in each other. They're just overwhelmed by it. 
If you're a young single guy, young single girl, I think that's an important point to make. God doesn't agree with the world that only guilty sex is fun. Totally disagrees with that. He says, that's baloney. You know why? You know what guilty sex is? It's guilty. It feels guilty. Innocent sexuality is all kinds of fun. Just read Song of Solomon. If it's appropriate, your dad lets you, right? Read Song of Solomon. It's, it's wonderful. God has made this to be enjoyable. God's not some stodgy guy up in the universe saying, well, I know the world's come up with all these fun, you know, out-of-bounds pleasures, and I know you know about them because they're everywhere, but that's not for you. Godliness is supposed to be difficult and hard. Quite the contrary. God wants you to be able to enjoy this fully because he made it. He made it to be enjoyable. He made it to be complete so it could be enjoyable. Innocent sex is one of the greatest gifts of God for the joy of mankind. It reveals the creativity of God, the love of God for his creatures, and that the pathway of obedience brings abundant joy. Guilty sex is one of the greatest tragedies of mankind. It's the ruining of God's intention of joy by smearing it with thoughts of guilt and fear of punishment and consequences. Now, singles who are here, youth, I know it may be a long time before you can enjoy this gift. I think it would serve you to actually elevate your view of sexuality so that you preserve it. Elevate your view of sexuality so that you preserve it. God will give grace to sustain you until that day. Joy follows obedience. Fear and pain and guilt follows the brief pleasures of sin. Okay, quickly, God's plan is beautiful because of all those reasons that I listed. And secondly, sin's perversion is disgusting. Sin's perversion is disgusting. I just want to say this directly, even though we all sort of know this, but we kind of are diminished in our convictions of this as we're bombarded by the culture. Because the culture says you got a guy and a girl and they get together in this movie and we even begin to reflect this, you know, I just wanted them to get together at the end. Really? See how easy it is for us to say that? We all say that. I just wanted them to get together at the end. Okay, Meaning what? We all say that. We all notice that inclination. Why? Well, it's set to music, and it was really hard, and she's got this problem, and he was able to help her. And And yet, according to God, sin's perversion of his plan is disgusting. And however you view romance, this disgust should be in your mind as well, for your own soul and for any person that you are relating to. Imagine this way of thinking in heaven. The thinking of the youth culture, of the surrounding world, the young person culture. Temporary physical relationships without faithfulness. That is the ultimate joy to be had as a young single person. Imagine that being proclaimed in heaven, the way it's proclaimed on earth. How disgusting to the angels who watch God in all of his holiness. Ultimate sexual joy is found in the forbidden relationship and not in a husband and wife. How disgusting to a Savior interceding for his bride. It's disgusting. It's not allowable. It's not understandable. God doesn't think, boy, it's awful hard down there. It's disgusting to him. 
and attempts to make it less so are explicitly God-dishonoring. Ephesians 5.1 says the following, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Listen, for you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God has a standard that even a reference to sexual sin in a trivial way in our conversation is wrong. It perverts the picture of the gospel that marriage is supposed to reflect. It is not understandable or considered normal. Those who pursue explicit sexual sin, sexual immorality, this passage says, do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, people will be in hell suffering God's wrath for sexual sin. And we feel that emotional pressure, the music and everything else, at the end of that movie and say, boy, I just wanted them to get together. We ought to have this verse in mind. Now, like all sin, sexual sin can be forgiven. Grace is available. But grace is never mere overlooking of sin. It always comes at the cost of Jesus' life. So to act like my pursuit of sexual sin is no big deal because God loves me and he'll forgive me is to forget that Jesus cried out on the cross in the agony of payment for sexual sin. And to just pursue it flippantly is to ignore that cry. Now the good news is that cry was complete. It was total. It was sufficient. So that any sexual sinner can look to that cross and can see in that Savior the payment for their sexual sin, their sexual impure thoughts, their activities with any other person, their temptation of any other person, all can be seen on Jesus, on the cross, totally paid for. And surely all of us, according to the standard of Ephesians, will have a lot on the last day to recognize Jesus paid for my sexual sin. Surely all of us, evaluating the kind of standard God has, perhaps even agreeing with the sexual ending of a movie, surely all of us will be able to say on that last day, what a Savior we have. Totally pure and paying for my sexual sin. 
even if it's just sin of thought. Certainly, if it's sin of deed. But we need to have this perspective. Sin's perversion is disgusting. God's perspective must be our conviction. God's hatred, our hatred. God's penalty, may it seem appropriate to us. And may we long for God's beautiful plan to be the description of our lives when it comes to our sexuality. We should not be ashamed of physical intimacy in marriage. If you're a single person, anticipate it with all of your heart. Look forward to it. Don't mar it prematurely. Don't try to start down that slide. Anticipate it and celebrate the beauty of it. It's exclusive. It's irrevocable. It's complete. It's enjoyable. Anticipate the beauty of God's plan. God made it. He made it to be anticipated. He made it to be enjoyed. And the perversion that sin brings to it is disgusting. Redeemable by Christ, but disgusting nonetheless. As you think about romance, put this conviction in place. God's plan for sexuality is beautiful. How can I let marriage be held in honor by my practice? How can the marriage bed be kept pure even as a single?